what was that? You. You don't know about anything that's happening right now. Wait, 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 wait. You don't think any of this is important to you. What does it mean? You're joking, right? You can't possibly be that naive. You do realize that almost everything that happens in this world will eventually trickle down and impact you. You don't believe me? Well, maybe I could let you in on a bit of foresight. So hi, and thank you for tuning into the first episode of Foresight. I'm your host, The Ladder Matter, and I just want to start off by giving you an overview of what I'm going to go through today. Here at home, the issues I want to cover are the January 6th commission and everything associated with that because it's a shit show. Joe Manchin, what he came out and said, and also that's a shit show. Newly unredacted portions of the Mueller report, which are also a shit show. And then an environmental disaster that's brewing off the coast of California, which again, unsurprisingly, is also a shit show. That'll wrap it up for us here at home, you know, because the United States at the current moment is a shit show, and for some reason, no one seems to get their act together. But moving to issues that involve the international community, I want to talk about the U.S. and coalition withdrawal from Afghanistan um, and the implications of that, what's going on there, Israel's newly formed government, and then I'm going to finish off the episode talking about some landmark oil cases, the SARS-2 Delta variant, and then surging commodity prices and the possible effects on the U.S. economy. All right, so in response to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, Democrats proposed creating a congressional advisory committee, which is completely reasonable considering the extent Trump supporters went to try and stop the electoral votes from being counted. Um, But the proposed commission was to be based in part on the commission that investigated 9-11, and when it passed back in like 2002, had a whole lot of support. So... They wanted to use that as a blueprint because maybe if it passed then, something like it would pass again. So the commission would have been a 10-member panel, and then congressional leaders would have appointed two of each of the members. So Speaker Pelosi, Minority Leader McCarthy, Majority Leader Schumer, and Minority Leader McConnell. Each one of them would have got two appointments to to the panel. The chair would have been appointed by Pelosi and Schumer, and then the vice chair would have been appointed by McCarthy and McConnell. Great, right? They have representation. Everything's fine. Shouldn't be a big deal. So prior to the bill leaving committee, um, there were negotiations. Republicans made demands. Uh, Democrats did meet them on every one to the point that the chair of the committee and the ranking member came out and were like, hey, we got a deal. We think people supported everything should be fine. Committee sends that bill to the floor for a vote. And here comes Minority Leader McCarthy saying he's not going to support the commission unless it also investigates Antifa and Black Lives Matter and all the shit that happened last summer. He made that conditional upon supporting a commission to investigate what happened on January 6th. So as a result, the bill only passed by 252 votes. It was 252 to 175. Only 35 Republicans joined Democrats in voting for the commission. So once the bill passes the House, it gets sent to the Senate and it dies on a 54-35 vote. That wasn't really surprising given the current dynamics of the Senate, but we'll, we'll get to that. Six Republican senators... Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rob Portman of Ohio, Mitt Romney of Utah, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, and Ben Sass of Nebraska, they all voted for the commission. 
In addition to Richard Burr, these are the same Republican senators that voted to convict Trump. So it's it's no surprise. There is an obvious schism in the Republican Party in the Senate and the Republican Party countrywide where some people want to acknowledge the reality of our political situation and some people want to act like it doesn't exist. All right. And so this is the thing. Since the bill died in the Senate, that means there's no investigation right now into what happened on January 6th. And that's a whole crock of shit because... Our government is going to work every day. It is waking up every morning. And no one's objective is to figure out why U.S. Capitol defenses failed for the first time since the War of 1812. That makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. Something needs to be done. We needed an investigation yesterday. It is June. This shit happened in January. What are y'all doing? So before I continue, I just want to dispel of a few things. First of all, McCarthy's suggestion that Antifa and Black Lives Matter need to be investigated alongside January 6th is is complete bullshit because what happened last summer and what's still going on to a degree is completely separate from what those Confederates did on January 6th. I get it. Burning down JCPenney's and shit isn't great, right? But that's the thing. Burning down a JCPenney and raiding the seat of power of the United States are two separate things, right? One is just vandalism, grand larceny, like all that shit. The other is an act of war. So stop stop equivocating the two, because all it is is showing us how much you don't actually care about what the fuck is going on right now and how much you're enabling what's going on right now. Because if you truly wanted to stop it, if you were truly concerned about everything that's going on, you would do something. You have the power to do something, but, but you won't because you're scared. And this gets me to my second point. The fact that McCarthy waited till the bill left committee, but before it was up for a formal vote to come out and say Black Lives Matter and Antifa needed to be investigated just shows how full of shit Republicans are. Procedure in Congress guarantees that if you have issues, you bring that shit up in committee. That's exactly what the chairman and ranking member were doing. They were taking what was being said in committee back to congressional leaders to okay it. And that's why they presented a bipartisan bill because they thought they had the fucking support of Republicans. So you come out after it's left committee, but wait before it comes up for a vote to say, oh, I actually don't support it. That just shows you're willing to negotiate in bad faith on an issue this serious. And that completely re- removes any any reason to believe anything Republicans say, because right here, dead in our face, they're playing fucking games. He plotted for it to die because that's very strategic to do knowing house rules to wait until that exact moment to withdraw your support, to withdraw the caucus's support. And this is the thing. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know the only place in Washington they have representation, they have power, is in Congress. They know the only way they can influence any investigation into January 6th is if they come to the table and if they would have passed that commission. Now, there's really only two ways for for 1-6 to be investigated either through the DOJ or if Speaker Pelosi decides to establish a select committee in the House. But see, this is the thing about both those options. Each one would have to be done by Democrats, right? If Biden DOJ, if someone there appoints a special counsel, it's going to be someone that Biden appointed and Republicans are going to draw a line to them and say it's just a partisan witch hunt. If Nancy Pelosi starts a select committee, it's going to be headed by a Democrat, like an elected Democrat, not just someone Democrats chose. 
So what Republicans have done is forfeited any chance that they can influence an investigation to then corner Democrats to do it by themselves. So they have the the idea that it's partisan to fall back on because in the coming weeks, months ahead, Republicans are going to say this is an attack on conservative rights. This is part of the the big tech movement to to restrict our speech. They're going to pull all these rabbits out of their hat to make it seem like it's more than us trying to figure out what the fuck happened, which is should be anyone's. It, it should be the only goal right now. Right. I mean, is it is it crazy to think that when a bunch of people can just walk into the Capitol because that's that's kind of what they did. I mean, they broke glass and stuff, but they just walked in and put the Capitol into lockdown. That's not that's not normal. That's not something that's OK. We should have better security than that. But this is the Republican playbook to corner Democrats and to force the investigation to be partisan. And doing this just adds another layer that they can deny reality because it's not. Democrats came to the table and gave you everything you wanted to start a bipartisan commission that would have been people appointed outside of politics to investigate. And you you came back and you fucked it up. You fucked it up. That's what that's at the end of the day. That's what you did. You just fucked it up for everybody so you can rile up your base and so you can get people fed on anger and it's literally destroying us. So I'd appreciate it if you'd stop, but you won't. You're going to keep doing this. <sighs> so moving on to fucking Joe Manchin. Just just keep everything I just said in the back of your mind right now as I talk about what the fuck Joe Manchin is up to. If you don't know anything about him or what's going on, he recently published an op-ed in the Charleston Gazette. It's a paper back in West Virginia where he's from. Now, before I get into what he said, I want to lay the lay the political landscape. Manchin's a blue dog Democrat, so he's basically a conservative that's part of the Democratic Party. They're a rare breed today because he's the only statewide elected Democrat in, the, in, in West Virginia. So what he's been able to do is it's kind of special because in 2018, when he was last reelected, he won by 19,000 votes. It was only a three point margin. It wasn't like he won by that much. But for comparison's sake, last year in 2020, Trump won West Virginia by 300,000 votes and your 40 point margin over Biden. Like he swept. No questions about it. This is deep Trump country. So the fact that Joe Manchin was able to win with the D behind his name and like Trump's America is, I mean, that's something special. So with the Senate being split 50-50 and with Vice President Harris sitting in, in a position to offer a tie-breaking vote, all lies are on Joe Manchin because Democrats are currently in a position to do a lot of things if they choose to do so. And this is where that op-ed he released comes into play. In the Charleston Gazette, Joe Manchin says he's opposed to changing the rules for the filibuster. And he will not support the For the People Act. And this means that Joe Manchin, along with Kristen Cinema of Arizona, stand in the way between legislation and typical Washington gridlock at the moment. It's just them two. If they get off their ass, we could actually redesign the entire country. But as of the moment, they won't. And given Senate rules, at the moment, there are really only three options to pass legislation in the Senate, and none of them are viable. First option you have to legislate is budget reconciliation. And this was the procedure that they used to pass the American Rescue Plan back in, in February. And it's what Republicans used back in 2017 to pass the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. 
Budget reconciliation, it's a narrow set of rules where basically if the legislation impacts the U.S. budget to a certain degree, then you can use this process to pass legislation with a simple majority. Only need 51 votes. You don't have to worry about a filibuster. Thing is, Joe Manchin is opposed to the For the People Act. So under the impossible situation that the For the People Act fit under budget reconciliation, Democrats would have to get one Republican to side with them. But given that the For the People Act doesn't fit in budget reconciliation, it's not viable. And honestly, most things don't fit into budget reconciliation. Back when they tried to pass the American Rescue Plan and they wanted to add the $15 minimum wage, the parliamentarian, I think that's what it's called, came out and said, yeah, no, that doesn't fit within the parameters of budget reconciliation, can't do it. The second option is invoking cloture. Cloture is basically when the whole Senate as a body stands up and it proceeds to move. So the minority party in the Senate is like just taken out of power. You're just like moving like a bulldozer because you've invoked cloture. And the filibuster is basically a Senate rule that allows minority parties to basically hold up the Senate. You just perpetually debate on something so that it can't move forward and eventually run out of time. So under this scenario to invoke cloture to pass the For the People Act, Democrats would have to get 11 Republicans. Because remember, Joe Manchin doesn't support it. So it's 49 Democrats. You'd have to get 11 Republicans. You hit 60. You invoke cloture. You move past the filibuster. You can get it passed. The thing is, only six Republicans voted to investigate the event that almost led to their tragic death. If they won't take their own lives that seriously, what makes you think they'll take the voting rights of people across the country that seriously? I mean, genuinely, be honest. What are they going to support? Because what have they done? Remember Infrastructure Week? Tell me, what are they doing? Nothing. So the last one, the third one, and the option that pretty much everyone has known would have to be invoked if the Senate wanted to do anything because of the realities of option one and two is changing the rules using the nuclear option and eliminating the filibuster for major legislation. Now, look, Senate rules are complicated. They're confusing. I'm not an expert in them. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in them, but I'm going to try to give you a, a good enough overview that, that you can understand what the nuclear option is. So basically, it's a procedure in the Senate where you establish precedent without actually changing the underlying rules. So like you're not changing the rule book, you're just changing how you play the game. In this scenario, what would happen is Schumer would bring the For the People Act up for a vote. Someone would filibuster it, prevent it from going to a vote. In response, they'd attempt to invoke cloture, get 60 votes, the vote would fail. The presiding officer is then going to say to them, hey, um, your attempt to invoke cloture has failed, filibuster continues. In response, the Democratic majority says, we're going to overrule you and say that you're wrong and that we don't need to invoke cloture to move this to the floor because they're the simple majority in the Senate. They can do that. So the precedent from there would be that you don't have to invoke cloture to move to a vote on a bill. Now, I believe it would be mal malpractice if I didn't give you the history behind how we got here with the nuclear option, just being honest. Back in the Obama administration, Mitch McConnell was the minority leader and the lower court vacancies and the federal judiciary, Obama would appoint judges, then majority leader Harry Reid, who led the Democrats, he would get the hearing, bring it up for a vote, but minority leader Mitch McConnell would filibuster them. And he would filibuster every single one to the point that there were just vacancies all over the federal judiciary. So Harry Reid decides to use the nuclear option, that procedure, for lower court appointments. And then they proceed to confirm Obama's judges. 
So in 2014, Republicans went back control of the Senate. And guess what? Now Majority Leader Mitch McConnell doesn't confirm any judges anymore. Just lets them sit there. Because he controls what goes on in the Senate. Republicans are in power. They control the chamber. This is one of the reasons why Trump was able to appoint so many judges to the federal bench. Because Mitch McConnell held them all open for him. And the most famous case of that was when Antonin Scalia died. I believe it was either fall of, no, it was sometime during 2015, because I remember the Republican primary was still going on. But sometime in 2015, Scalia dies. Obama nominates Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland is now the attorney general, just to let you know. But Obama nominates Merrick Garland to Antonin Scalia's old seat. Well, Majority Leader McConnell says, yeah, we're not going to hear him. It's an election year. Uh, so we should let the people decide who the president's going to be first. And we're not going to hear the nomination. We're not going to vote on it. Nothing. It, it goes nowhere. So once Trump wins election, he gets inaugurated and he nominates Neil Gorsuch to Antonin Scalia's old seat. And what does Mitch McConnell do? He invokes the nuclear option. And then he removed the filibuster from Supreme Court nominations. And that's how he was able to get both Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney, Comey, Coney, Barrett to the, to the federal bench. So that's how we got here where the filibuster's on its last leg, that little, little history tidbit. I mean, it's nice to know. It just goes to show you how fucking sinister Mitch McConnell is and how hellbent he is on power because all those, those judges that Trump confirmed, they're going to sit there for, for their, for the rest of their life. So barring any tragic circumstances, Democrats have a simple majority in the Senate till at least 2023 when the next Congress comes in. So like, say next year, Republicans win back the chamber. Democrats still have control of the the Senate until the new Congress was, was sworn in. So in this time, a whole lot could be done. That's like a good year and a half away. But the only problem is Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema refuse to use the nuclear option. They want to work on bipartisanship, quote unquote. So the For the People Act isn't getting passed um, and none of Biden's agenda is getting passed, like until they change their, their mind. Just want to dispel of some shit again. Chris Wallace asked Joe Manchin on Fox News Sunday. He was basically like, why would you come out and say you're not going to support the filibuster? Like, getting rid of the filibuster when you know Republicans are obstructionists because now they know since you're never going to vote to get rid of the filibuster that they don't have to appease you for shit. Like they don't have to come to you because you can't get anything done because you're not going to get 10 senators to vote with you. So yeah, you shot yourself in the foot. No. And he basically tried to go on and on about bipartisanship, this, that, and the third. But Chris Wallace hits the nail on the head. Joe Manchin, you gave up all of your political capital. You were the most important senator in the entire chamber, but now since we know exactly what you're going to do, you're a non-factor. And see, that's one thing about Trump that is surprising Joe Manchin didn't fucking learn. He kept the unexpected on the table. You never knew what Trump was going to do. That's why everyone always planned for, for every possible outcome. Here's the other thing. I get why Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Sinema are scared of using the nuclear option in our political climate, but... If they actually did it and the Senate was actually able to legislate and they actually improved the lives of their constituents, I think it would break the Republican hold on on their states even more. 
I mean, their state, well, not West Virginia. Arizona's trending blue. If you actually get in and pass things, and it's passed with united Republican opposition, you're going to be able to go straight to your constituents and be like, all of these things that happened for you that you love were done by me. And all of those people that want me out of this seat didn't support any of it. So they don't support you. A very simple argument to make. But no, they want to remain in that political box and do nothing. They have all of this power, but they're afraid to use it. But look, I have been hard on Joe Manchin, so I'll I'll give him this. Had he, had he and, and Kristen Sinema not won election in 2018, Mitch McConnell would be majority leader right now. The American Rescue Plan would have never been passed and half of Biden's cabinet wouldn't be who it is. So I'll, I'll give that props to them. But going forward to watch Joe Manchin, um, doubtful he's going to change his opinions, but maybe he will. Um, and also, I want to see what maneuvering are Democrats able to come up with? Since you know pretty much you can't get any legislation passed, what are you going to do? How are you going to make this work? How are you going to respond to this? Are you going to give us a new way to legislate through Washington gridlock? All right, moving on, I want to talk about some newly unredacted portions of the Mueller report. Um, like one of the best documents the U.S. government has ever produced, in my opinion, um, even though half of that shit is behind black bars. But, but, but just wait. <laughs> So I want to focus on Paul Manafort. And if you don't know who he is, he served as Trump's campaign chairman in the summer of 2016. Very short period. He came after Corey Lewandowski, but before Steve Bannon. And the reason his stint at the Trump campaign was so short is because the second he came in, a Ukrainian ledger surfaced that tied him to a Ukrainian oligarch who's backed by Russia. He got payments from the Russian government, basically. So when the Mueller probe was launched in 2017, Manafort got caught in the crosshairs. How unfortunate. He got arrested on tax evasion, essentially. And at the moment, Manafort was cooperating to help him get that big fish. But Manafort was caught lying. So it was a whole debacle where he was under house arrest. And then the prosecutors just show up in court when they're, and they're like, yeah, we want to remand him to prison pending trial because he's doing all types of shit. Like he was communicating with other, like it, it's a whole story in itself. So I don't want to I don't even want to go into detail. No one really knew what was going on because remember, the Mueller, Mueller probe is still going and Manafort's charges have nothing to do with the mandate of the Mueller report of, of the Mueller probe. So it was kind of shrouded in mystery. Until recently, when a judge unredacted the portions relating to Manafort. According to Mueller, Manafort lied to prosecutors about relaying internal campaign data from Trump's campaign to Konstantin Kalimnik. Now, you may not know who Konstantin Kalimnik is, but let's just say the U.S. intelligence community knows a lot about him. He's a known GRU operative. And if you don't know what the GRU is, it's the Russian equivalent of the CIA. It was born out of the KGB. They're not anybody to fuck with. So this is who Paul Manafort was sending data to. Konstantin Kalimnik. And his name comes up a few times in the Mueller report. Like he was, he was making his way around town in 2016. So the reason this matters is that there was a concrete and definable relationship between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. At the time, William Barr walked his ass out and said there was no evidence of collusion. That was a pile of bullshit. Manafort was indebted to the Ukrainian oligarchs. Like, he owed them a shit ton of fucking money. 
So you mean to tell me the man who owes the Ukrainians and the Russians money becomes Trump's campaign chairman and then he's caught sending information from the campaign to the Russians? That's what happened. And Barr still came out and said there was no evidence of collusion. And that's just that one part. That's just Paul Manafort. What about everybody else? What about the other 300 contacts with the Russians? Yes, it's 2021 and I'm still talking about the fucking Russians. And you better be too, but, but we'll get to that. So this means people at the highest level of both the Trump campaign and the Trump administration were helping cover up Russia's efforts to destabilize our fucking democracy. All the events that are happening today result from what Barr covered up. Think about all the things the Russians have been doing. Solar winds? Maybe we could have gotten in front of that. Postured against them. But Trump was our fucking president. He was in on it. So going forward, look out for what else gets unredacted from the Mueller report. And it's only like a prequel. It's not even the whole series yet. And if you want to know what I mean by that, um, check out episode two of Foresight because I talk about it. <laughs> anyway, finish up the issues here at home. I want to talk about um, what's happening off the coast of California. It's, it's, it's a tad bit fucked up. If you don't know what DDT is, it's a pesticide that was popular up until like the 1980s when it was banned around the world. And the reason it was banned is because it was causing cancer, um, and it was responsible for the thinning of bird eggs, which is part of the reason the bald eagle almost went extinct. So yeah, DDT, very bad. Not something that you want in the ecosystem at all. Well, uh, about 25,000 corroding barrels of DDT have been found off the coast of California. And considering when the pesticide was banned and the fact that the barrels are corroding, they've been there for a few decades. So I'm just wondering... Uh, who the fuck put them there and who the fuck are going to clean them up? Because apparently California is confused because they have like, how the fuck are you going to pick up 25,000 barrels of DDT and where the fuck are you going to put it at? All, all very good questions. Like I understand, I share your sympathy, but guess what? You're the ones in this position of power. Like do something about it, please. Urgently. Because if anything happens and that shit gets into the water, think about the consequences. Decimation to the food chain. Because it's 25 thousand barrels of DDT. Anyway, figure out who put them there and lock their ass up if they ain't dead already. So that wraps up what's happening here in the United States. God bless America. Um, now I want to talk about some things that involve the international community. Uh, and I want to start off with the end of the war in Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. and coalition withdrawal. Just for some background, as part of the war on terror, the United States invaded Afghanistan in 2001 to get rid of the Taliban. Now, you may ask yourself, wasn't Al-Qaeda responsible for 9-11? Why would they invade to get rid of the Taliban? And that's a great question. We did it because the Taliban was sympathetic to Al-Qaeda, so they were hostile by association. Pick your friends wisely. It's long been compared to Vietnam just because of the nature of the war. And now, Afghanistan's clocking in as the longest. It's beating Vietnam. So like Vietnam, the terrain of Afghanistan favored indigenous population. When it is your land... You know it. You know how to navigate it. The Vietnamese were famous for their ability to navigate through the Southeast Asian jungle. That's why we fucking invented napalm to burn the fucking jungle to the ground to kill them. Same can be said about Afghanistan. So when winter comes, it snows heavily in the mountains. And what the Taliban does is it retreats into the mountains, plan for the next fighting season. And then when spring comes, they come all the way down. They start fighting again. And then once they go back up in the winter, they'll booby trap everything. So pretty much, you know, forces can't advance. That's kind of been how 
the war in Afghanistan has gone for the past few years. At the moment, though, it's not really fought by U.S. and coalition troops on the ground uh, because we've begun to transition to the Afghani security forces taking on much of the responsibility. That policy really culminated to February of 2020 when the Trump administration entered an executive agreement with the Taliban, the Doha Agreement, that established the steps for the U.S. and her allies to begin to withdraw. So the Doha Agreement has four parts. First part is the U.S. coalition withdrawal. That was supposed to to be over by May 1st of 2021, this year. We obviously passed that deadline. Taliban is pissed about it. And Biden has set a new date of September 11th. The second part of the agreement is that the Taliban won't allow anyone to basically plot to attack the United States within Afghanistan territory. They specifically name Al-Qaeda in the agreement. And it's basically a don't mess with us. Don't allow anyone to mess with us. We won't mess with you and disturb your domestic affairs. Third, the Taliban and the recognized Afghanistan government were supposed to begin talks by March 10th, 2021. And then a ceasefire is the last step is supposed to be implemented to, you know, try to end the fighting, start to rebuild regardless of what the political situation is. The reason the withdrawal is important is because it marks the end of an era. For the past 20 years, the narrative in the Middle East has been the United States response to its first major attack on its soil. Now, since we fully withdrawed, it shifts from our response to 9-11 to the fallout because of our botched response to 9-11. When you look at Afghanistan and its state, you can't look at it without recognizing the extended occupation the United States had over it. When you look at Iraq and an unstable government that's there, you can't look at it and forget that we invaded Iraq on the false premise that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And I mean, that's the theme throughout the Middle East. And we're going to have to reckon with the fact that we left a generation without anything, accustomed to war, strife, hunger. And and I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it there. So the current withdrawal, in my opinion, uh, is going to end with the Taliban retaking Kabul because the Afghani government is currently planning for an invasion by the Taliban. Like they're, they're prepping for that. Vice News did a, did an interview with some Taliban leaders and they basically like, yeah, you, they're basically like, you know what the fuck is up? Like, stop. Like, stop. You, you know what we're doing. You know what's happening. Once you leave, stop, stop prolonging this. Like, just get it over with. Just leave. Wash your hands of it. Call it a day. We ain't worried about you. Don't be worried about us. We just want our fucking home back. That's basically what what they said in the interview. But I paraphrase just a little bit. Uh, but once this happens, we can expect some bad human rights abuses to start emerging. You can only hope for the best for all of the people there and, and all of the people that could be punished because they lived a more liberal life um, when the United States had a presence there. Um, Think about all of the people that may have served as translators, guides, uh, all of those things to assist the U.S. and the coalition. They're going to need to be be ex- extracted, honestly. Like they need to be on the planes that are leaving with us. Because if they're not, the second the Taliban gets back to Kabul, they're dead. And if they don't die immediately, they're going to die a slow and horrific death. But the Taliban is going to label them as an enemy. There's no question about that. So I wonder if a ceasefire ever occurs, uh, if that part of the agreement will take hold. But notably, the United States said it would continue to offer air support to the Afghani security forces uh, against the Taliban. So I'm confused how that message 
meshes with section what is that two yeah so if that happens the whole the whole thing will crumble and you know the taliban may be able to just overrun fucking like it just nothing about this situation looks like it's going well like nothing about it and it's weird sitting here in 2021 knowing that i was a fucking toddler when the war in afghanistan started and here i am sitting in my mid-20s and it's like bro did y'all learn any fucking thing like anything at all no okay well moving on i want to talk about the newly formed government in israel pretty interesting uh so following the latest escalation in the israeli-palestinian conflict opposition to benjamin netanyahu grew to a point that they were able to form their own government in the knesset that's israel's parliament if you're unfamiliar with the way parliamentary systems work essentially what happens is People elect parties to the Knesset, to the legislative body, to parliament. Then the parties choose the people to go to represent. And then among those members serving in the legislature, in parliament, in the Knesset, they elect the prime minister from amongst them. So you need a coalition of like a majority or supermajority of votes to form a government. So then you can start putting members of the Knesset into positions of, of power. But I probably have more information on that in like an ethos episode. That'll just give you a background on how this shit works. So if a single party does have enough seats, they can form their own government. Like their party platform can be the platform of the government and they can go from there. Thing is, due to Israel's demographics, there's never been a single party government in its modern history. Every single one since they made it back in the 1940s has been a coalition government. Since it's a coalition replacing another coalition, that means people out of the Netanyahu's coalition have left and and agreed to join the other. Regardless, Netanyahu's coalition has failed and he's out of power. And the coalition that replaces him, oh boy, is it a melting pot. The coalition is made of eight different parties and it ranges from right-wing nationalists who are Zionists to centrists to Muslim Israelis or Israeli Muslims. Basically, it's people across the entire political spectrum, across the entire Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Like These are people from every walk of life uniting in their universal hatred of Benjamin Netanyahu. And I mean, Netanyahu, for you to get Muslims and Zionists on the same team in the current state of, of the Middle East right now, That says a lot about how fucking bad you are. Like, that says a lot. But the reason I find this important is that this new government could signal a watershed moment for Israel. If they find an actual way to sit down and cooperate, if they find an actual way to discuss things and to actually achieve solutions and bring everyone to the table in a meaningful way, it could change everything. The problem is, is that just due to the nature of the coalition, there's a slim chance that it survives and not many people have faith in it. So the coalition is being being led by Yair Lapid and he's a centrist. What they've decided is that a right-wing nationalist, Naftali Bennett, will serve as the prime minister for two years and then Yair Lapid will replace them. Considering that this coalition is drawing support from four Arabs, in the Knesset. Naftali won't, he, he won't be able to pursue his agenda the way he wants. So is it going to piss him off or is he going to piss off that Arab wing of the coalition? Either way, the coalition can't afford to lose any votes. 
So if, so if they can get something and they can pull something off here, more power to them. And I hope that they can. Just want to go ahead and get to the last few things I want to cover in this show. Um, the first, there have been several cases against oil companies that have been landmark cases. They basically direct them to cut their emissions by double digits by 2030. So it's just proof that the pressure being put on the system is working to a degree and that maybe there is a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe, maybe not. Moving on, the SARS-2 Delta variant, uh, it originated in India and it's shown up across the entire world. So it's everywhere. But the Delta variant is following the trend of all of the SARS-2 variants where it's more lethal, more transmissible and more resistant to vaccines. Vaccines still work, but it can break through better. And all this, tell, all this tells us is that as long as SARS is able to circulate in poorer countries, it still poses a risk to all of us. I mean, I've said this since the first few fucking weeks of the pandemic. We have to attack this like the global problem it is. It's not a domestic issue for anyone. And lastly, surging commodity prices. So there's been a whole lot of freakouts about inflation, uh, the surging price of goods, this, that, and the third. And I'm not an economist, but I just want to tell you, calm down and that it's okay. At least as far as I see things. And the reason I say that is because remembering what happened at the beginning of the pandemic gives us insight to what's happening now. So let's just back up a bit. Remember when everything abruptly shut down and everybody was going to the grocery stores and grocery stores were fucking empty and it felt like the end of the world. There was no toilet paper, nothing. But then we turn on the TV and we'd see all of this food going to waste in restaurants that were closed across the country. And the question is why? It's because the supply chain's messed up. When everyone stops going out and then everyone starts going to the grocery store, you can't just easily move those things over to the grocery store. Supply chain issues. That's why all of that food was sitting there and rotting when people needed to buy it from the store. So to take that and apply it to what's happening now, it's the reverse. So now everyone is going from being inside to going outside and wanting things. People want new homes. People want new cars. People want new clothes. People want new everything. People want to experience life again. And it's too much of a demand on the supply. Supply just can't keep up. So everyone's fighting for resources. So in order to make all of the things that you need, you have to buy more commodities. If more people are buying commodities and you haven't been producing anything, you haven't ramped up production the way you need to because we've been sitting inside staring at our phones for the past year and a half. Guess what? the price of the little that you can make is going to go up. The prices of homes around the country aren't actually going up. It's just the fact that everyone wants to move. Everyone, some, everyone wants something new. Everyone wants something fresh. Eventually, those prices are going to level out when people realize, hey, I'm kind of just acting on a whim right now. Same thing about cars. Right now, people are selling used cars for more money than they bought them for when they bought them new. They're getting more money than they paid for them, brand new off the lot to resell it. That's insane. There's no way there aren't enough cars in circulation to the point that you need to be paying over asking price for a used car. Like that, that makes no sense. So the nexus of all of these problems is we're being greedy right now. We want everything we missed out on the past year and a half and it's fucking everything up. If you can sit back, fucking relax. Hold on. The world's not going anywhere. It's okay. But the issue is that if the market can't level out quick enough, 
if these commodity prices don't adjust quick enough, it could have dire implications for all of the economic devastation we avoided. I mean, everyone's not doing great right now, but considering how bad the pandemic was, it's a miracle we're not doing worse. So we have to take that realistically, and we have to be honest about it, because we don't want these temporary issues to become permanent. We don't want them to to become a bigger problem than they need to be. And it can. It can happen. But let's hope it doesn't. Uh, but with that, that's the first episode of Foresight. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, this one's long. I'm going to try to shorten them. I guess I'm including too much information. Um, I hope not, because I feel like it's important. But anyway... Peace out. Have a good night. Good day. Whatever the fuck you listen to this shit. Oh, yeah. And again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it.